Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I want to speak tonight a simple message, very simple. This is not some big high-octane sermon tonight. It's a simple little teaching I want to share with you on what is in your hand. What is in your hand? Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here am I. And God said, Draw not nigh here. Unto, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, God said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. For I'm come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a large and good land, unto a land that flows with milk and honey. And the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress thee. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, just the first few words of the 12th verse. And God said, Certainly, or absolutely, or surely, or you might translate it from Hebrew, without a doubt. I will be with thee. Now turn to chapter 4 and the first two verses there. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And Moses said, A rod. Now I just want to read the last two verses again for you, but first let me say this. This is at the end of a long catalog of objections why Moses can't do this. Moses, God calls him, and then Moses has all these objections, all these hindrances that are in his way, all these disqualifications. And finally, at the end of it, Moses says, they won't believe that I saw you. I have seen you, but no one will believe me. And God does not answer that. All God says is, what? is in your hand. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
what is that in thine hand? And Moses said, a rod. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again in front of all these people for those who have just given this time and energy to be a part of the school of discipleship. And I thank you, Lord, that this church is involved in the work that to which you have called every person in the kingdom to make disciples. Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you for the cooperation of teacher and learner, for the participation and interaction between master and student. And I thank you for that, God, that it is in your perfect plan. Now, Lord, teach us. Now, Lord, be our instructor. Come, Holy Spirit. Break through all of the cloud of unknowing, every hindrance, everything of fatigue. Lord, as we reckon time, it's a Wednesday night. People have worked hard. Some have come here without their dinners. I'm asking you, Lord, that you would somehow break through all that and that we would hear from you deep within in the inner person of every listener. And I thank you for it in advance in the wonderful name Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. The Moses syndrome is the syndrome that says, I have failed so utterly, I have failed so bitterly, and there are now so many obstacles and hindrances between me and the call of God that there is no way to get back to where I'm supposed to be. Moses had made a false start. He had been raised as a as a prince in the house of Egypt. If you think God doesn't have a sense of humor, that, that here is a Hebrew baby, a child of a slave. Pharaoh has just passed a law that all of the Hebrew baby boys are to be slain at birth. And so Moses' parents and his elder sister hide the baby in a, in a basket and place him in the, in the shallow water of the Nile River he is plucked out of that basket and out of that river by the daughter of Pharaoh, and he is raised in the palace of Pharaoh, who has ordered his death. That, does nobody else think that's funny but me? That God says that Moses, that, uh, excuse me, if Pharaoh says, I'm going to kill all the Hebrew boy babies, and God says, here, raise this one. So he raises this baby, Pharaoh and his family raise this baby until he is grown. But at that time, when he is 40 years old, Moses feels the inclination to identify with the Hebrew people, with his birth and with his background and his culture and his language. And so he, he lashes out at a Hebrew, at a, an Egyptian taskmaster who is beating a Hebrew slave. But he acts in carnality and impetuously, and he kills the Egyptian slave master. It's not exactly what we call premeditated murder. I'm not a lawyer. I know we've got him in the house. But I would think that he is charged, he would be charged with what we might call aggravated manslaughter or assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. He kills the, he kills the Egyptian, buries his body, hides him, and thinks he's gotten away with it. Finding out that the, that the crime is discovered, Moses flees all the way to Midian, to the other side of the desert, where he marries this Midianite girl and works there for the next 40 years for his father-in-law as a shepherd on the backside of the Midianite desert. Now, 
he feels surely that he is insulated from any further call of God upon his life. He has failed. He has disappointed God. He's made a false start. He has committed, if not murder, at least manslaughter. And beyond that, he's 80 years old. Now, you just need to hear what I'm going to say next. I don't know who all's here and all of your ages, but in the kingdom of God, you don't get to retire. It doesn't mean you don't retire from Western Electric or IBM or Boeing or Lockheed. It means that you can retire from all of those, but you don't get to retire from the kingdom of God. You're in this until you go to heaven. So God says, Moses says, look, I'm 80 years old. Furthermore, he throws up this objection. I can't speak plainly. He has a a very serious speech impediment, a stutter. He says, I can't go back to Egypt. There's a price on my head. I'm an outlaw. I'm 80 years old. I'm the wrong choice. I'm totally the wrong choice. There are many, many people here that have felt that about one thing or another in your life, that you have sensed that there may be some call upon your life or something. You know, whenever we use the terminology of a call upon people's life in the church, everybody immediately jumps to the conclusion that you're called to preach, that you're called to pastor a church. But there is a call upon your life a call to serve in the kingdom. And people say, yes, I know God has called me. I know God has something for me to do, some place for me to serve. But I'm the wrong person. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too uneducated. I'm too smart. I'm too poor. I'm too rich. I'm too old. I'm too experienced. I'm too inexperienced. We go through all of this long litany of objections and hindrances that we think disqualify us. A minister said to me one time who had fallen, had a difficulty in his life and had fallen. And he said to me, I feel that I, I waited long enough and God is calling me back into the ministry. But he said, so I've lost so much. So much has been lost. There's no use to argue. It's true. So much have been lost. Why would I say to him, no, 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 you haven't lost anything. I said, yes, you have lost much. But there is still much to be gained. There is still much to be gained. The journey is not finished yet. Here is, a, here is a song that every Christian can sing no matter where they are, and that is, Lord, I'm pressing on. Lift me up and lead me on to higher ground. No matter where it is with you, no matter how it is, God is at war with that. God is at war with the status quo. He wants to lead you from glory to glory to glory to glory. Now, in the process of that, If you make a false start, then God is not suddenly, he doesn't just check you off. Okay, that's it. You screwed up. I'm through with you. I don't even like you anymore. That's not your God. That's your mother-in-law. God God is the God of not just second chances. Oh, somebody said one time, God's the God of second chances. I said, well, that just disqualifies about 99% of us. Because there are very few people that make it even on the second chance. God is a God of ultimate chances. God is the God of chance after chance after chance after chance. So Moses goes through this long list of things that disqualify him, particularly the false start in Egypt. 
When King David, who also made multiple false starts, but when King David was going to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Baal Judah, the old military capital, up to Jerusalem and establish it there, he, he did the right thing in a totally wrong way. He loaded the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts into an ox cart. There is absolutely no scriptural excuse for, for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts to be in an ox cart. It's only supposed to be carried one way, and that is the priests are supposed to carry the Ark on staves that are put through the, the brackets of the Ark of the Covenant and walk carrying it. David puts it up in the back of an ox cart. There's a man walking behind it named Uzzah. He's a good guy. He's not doing anything wrong. He's trying to help. The ox cart goes down into a hole, a chug hole in the bottom of a creek, and it looks like it's going to fall out in the mud. Well, what's the most natural thing in the world? You see, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the Host is going to fall out in the bottom of a creek. He just puts his hand up to keep it from falling, and it strikes him dead. Not supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. It was an instinct of good to do the wrong thing. He puts his hand up and he's dead. Well, that stops the parade. <laughs> David said, Woo, <laughs> we can't bring this into the streets of Jerusalem. People, you know, what are we going to do? So he parks it. He leaves the Ark of the Covenant at somebody's house. Can you just imagine that scene? Can you imagine that scene? He calls a farmer there with the exciting name of Obed-Edom. wonder what they called him for short. I wonder if it was Obed or Dom. He said, hey, you Dom, come over here. We're going to leave the Ark of the Covenant at your house. Well, what do you say to the king? What do you say? Well, okay, your majesty. You know, here's this guy dead. All right, we'll, I'll put it in the basement and put a tarp on it, and I'll try to keep the kids off of it. But are you coming back? And David tucks his tail between his leg, and all of the, all of the band and all the floats and everybody sneak back into Jerusalem. The parade's over. But then David remembers the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, and he sends, he says, oh my God. We left that thing at Obadidom's house. I bet everybody down there is dead. I bet there's a hole in the earth. Oh, my gosh. You just remember Uzzah laying in the mud? Oh, man. Somebody go down there and check on him. So somebody goes down to Obadidom's house. They come back to give the report. They say, Your Majesty, we went to Obadidom's place. You're, you're just not going to believe it, David. So, oh, no. What is it? What is it? He said, Look. Everybody around him, they're getting three bushels an acre. He's getting 30 bushels an acre. All of his cows are giving more milk than everybody else's cows. Everything, all of his fruit trees are burdened with fruit and his wife is pregnant. David said, you know, I told him I'd come back and get that thing. So David goes back and this time, listen, God doesn't say, no, 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 no. You got us killed and you ruined the last parade. No, no, no. You stay in Jerusalem. Send somebody else. David goes back himself and this time he does it right. Are there, are there people in the house here that think, 
There's nothing that I can do in the kingdom. There's not even a volunteer job in the church. I'm not even equipped to, to, to work in the parking lot. I, I've messed up. I've lost much. Now, listen to what I'm going to tell you. Yes, you may have lost things. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't, it's, not, it's not the business of the ministry to jerk people around. Yes, okay, you've lost some things, but there is still much to be gained. Sometimes the damage from a false start cannot always be fixed. You need to hear what I'm saying. Sometimes it can't be fixed. When Moses killed that Egyptian, okay, Moses got a second chance. <laughs> the Egyptian, like, didn't. And Uzzah, David got a second chance. Uzzah, I don't know, I don't have a theological conviction on this, but... You know, Uzzah didn't do anything sinful or wicked. It was in the instinct. Just reach, prop up. The, I have the feeling Uzzah went to heaven. I really do. I think he reached up, touched the Ark of the Covenant, died in the mud, and woke up in heaven. And he said, really, really Lord? Really? Because I was trying to, like, help. You know what I think God said to Uzzah? You're in heaven. I'm glad you're here. I love you. I'm not mad at you, but I just need you to remember, you don't prop me up. I prop you up. Sometimes the damage can't be fixed. There are people here that damage relationships, damaged other people, damaged themselves, and not all that damage is going to be fixed. On the other hand, whatever is left God's redemptive process is still in that. Whatever is still to be gained, God's redemptive process is still in that. Some damage is just embarrassing. Some damage is just awkward. Some damage is terminal. But every single one of us has at some point or another done something that's caused some level of damage. Everybody that comes into this world comes in giving somebody pain, and that's usually a woman. But God says, I still have a purpose for you. I still have a purpose for you. The, the, the genuineness of God's call upon us in ways that make no sense logically. You say, God says, I need somebody to lead the people out of 430 years of slavery bondage in Egypt. I need somebody young and energetic, a charismatic leader that will inspire confidence and lead them into the land of Israel. I need a nation builder. I need somebody with strength and courage, and I need somebody with a spotless reputation. I know what I'll do. I'll find an 80-year-old outlaw with a stutter. With God, the shortest distance between two points is not necessarily a straight line. God has a call upon your life. God has something he wants you to do, someplace he wants you to participate. You just need to hear what I'm going to say. You will not defeat the call of God with a human logical argument. When I was a young preacher, uh, just at the end of the Civil War, I, I heard about... It hurts me when you laugh at me. I heard about a preacher at the end of the 
of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. And maybe a few of you have heard of him too. His name was Uncle Buddy Robinson. And Buddy Robinson was a holiness evangelist across the turn of the century that won thousands and thousands of people to Jesus. Wrote books. I'd read one of his books, Honey from the Rock. And I'd always had sort of a distant idol worship sense of uh, hero worship for Buddy Robinson. Finally, I was speaking at a camp meeting here in this state, and in the bookstore, the camp meeting bookstore, they had the old cassette tapes, and there was one that said Buddy Robinson on it. And I said, I know that you don't have a recording of Buddy Robinson. He died before there was sound recording. They said this was made right at the end of his life on old magnetic reel-to-reel tape. We've transferred it over onto cassettes. I said, give it to me. I bought one, got in my car, I'm driving home, I put it in the dashboard of the car and listened to the great Buddy Robinson preach while I drove through the night. I put it on, turned it on, and out came a voice that sounded like Elmer Fudd. <laughs> said, hello, my name Buddy Robinson. I like, I like to tell you about when Jesus came in my hospital room. I said, oh, man, they, they, du- they duplicated this tape out on the wrong speed. I turned around and drove all the way back to the campground, and I went in the bookstore. They were just about to close, and I just tossed it up on the counter. I said, friend, you duped this on the wrong speed. He said, now, Dr. Rutland, he said, does it, does it sound kind of high-pitched and whiny and a little bit like Elmer Fudd? I said, yes. He said, Dr. Rutland, that's it. I said, are you telling me that that silly old man is Buddy Robinson? He said, that's Buddy Robinson. I was so disappointed. Got in my car. I said, well, it's a long drive. I may as well just listen. Put the tape in. Hello, he said, my name's Buddy Robinson. I'm going to tell you about when Jesus came in my hospital room. Five minutes. I listened five minutes. I had to pull my car to the side of the road because I couldn't see for the tears in my eyes. Buddy Robinson said that that when he was born, he was born to a family of moonshiners in East Texas. He was totally illiterate, 19 years old, before he ever had on a pair of shoes, couldn't read, couldn't write, never been in a schoolhouse in his life. He went into a camp meeting, and he found Jesus as his Savior and received the baptism of the Spirit. He had a stutter that was so terrible that he couldn't even be understood. So when that night he got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, everybody was happy. When he said he was called to preach, everybody was sad. (laughs) He said he went to the fourth quarterly conference at the local Methodist church because the district superintendent was in town. And he said, I feel like the Lord has called me to preach, but he stuttered so badly. They said, oh, we're not giving you a license to preach. The second year he came back again, they said, buddy, sit down. You can't even talk. We're not giving you a license to preach. The third year he came back and the district superintendent said, just give him a license. Just give him a license and get rid of him. Give him a license. He can't do much harm. Give him a license. They gave Buddy Robinson a license and said, come next year at the fourth quarterly conference and give us a report on your ministry. And next year at fourth quarterly conference, they got all finished with the business. The district superintendent said, everybody please stand for the benediction. And Buddy Robinson stood up in the back. He said, you didn't call on me for my report. They said, oh, okay, Buddy, what? He said, well, I sold my mule and bought me a Bible. I taught myself to read and write. I've preached 185 times this year. I've won 380 people to Christ. He said, but if you'll give me one more year, I can do better. 
God healed Buddy Robinson of his stammer. He did not make him an electrifying speaker. (laughs) He healed him of his stammer. And then at 80 years of age, he stepped in front of a streetcar in San Francisco, and it nearly killed him. They put him in the hospital in San Francisco, and they said, Buddy, you're going to die. And he said, that night, Jesus stood at the end of my bed, and he said, Buddy, get up. I'm not through with you yet. I just want to say something to you tonight. After all of your objections, all of your past, all of your failures, all of your failings, all of your weaknesses, all of your disabilities, the same God who spoke to Buddy Robinson, the same God that spoke to Moses is speaking to you. I'm not through with you yet. Now, God's all of these objections that Moses lists, This next part, not everybody thinks these stories in the Bible are funny. I don't know if I just have a twisted sense of humor or what, but you listen to this. He goes through this whole thing, and Moses says, all right, I'll go, I'll go. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to believe me. I'm looking at you. I walk and say, I've seen God. They're going to say, you old crackpot, you haven't seen God? You haven't seen God? That's Moses' last appeal. They're not going to believe me. And God says, what is that in your hand? Like, you know, God doesn't know. (laughs) Listen to me now. Sometimes God will ask you a question just to get you to say the answer. He's not short on understanding. You understand? So he says to Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, stick. (laughs) Is that not funny? Am I the only one? God Almighty that spoke light into existence. And Moses is thinking, it's a stick. And God says, you, me, and a stick. That's all you need. (laughs) You remember later on, Moses throws that rod before Pharaoh and it becomes a snake. And Pharaoh says to his Egyptians, oh, you can do that kind of a trick. They said, Lord, that's not, your majesty, that's not any kind of a trick. We can do that. They throw their rods down and become snakes. So Moses' snake eats theirs. (laughs) Then Moses, they try to duplicate every trick that Moses does, everything he does. They think it's magic tricks until finally Moses strikes the dust with the same rod and it becomes, depending on how you translate it, fleas or or flies or, or gnats. And Pharaoh says, okay, duplicate that. And they say, the, the magicians say, we can't duplicate that. We can't duplicate that because that is the finger of God, which is a Hebrew idiom for the Holy Spirit. They said, this is, we can't do this. This is not magic here. This is not ledger domain. This is the Holy Spirit. So God says to Moses, listen, all you need is me and what's in your hand. Now listen to what that means to you. That means that God knows exactly who you are. 
He knows exactly what your gifts are or what you think are your lack of gifts. And there's so many people that are waiting in the kingdom. Young, I spend my life with young people, and I, I love the little brats, but, but so much of the time they spend time waiting for God to add some big thing to them. They wait, they're waiting for God to, to do something, to God to open the door, God to make a way, God to bring some situation that, that suddenly they, they walk out onto some massive stage. And God says, what is in your hand? What's in your hand right now? Just do what's before you with what's in your hand. That's the reason I always say, kids say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the president of the United States. I said, great, great. How about do your freshman year in college? That would be a good thing. If you would just complete your freshman year. And they said, well, all right, I, I, I'm going to, I, I'm going to complete my freshman year. I said, yeah, but see, the thing is, first you got to do like the first day. <laughs> do the first day of the first semester of your first year in college. You wait until God suddenly allows you to walk into the Oval Office and you may just sit there a while. Do what exactly what is before you. Now, that, that speaks to every single one of us. Look, we're talking all this whole period of time about finding your fit, finding your fit. Okay, none of the rest of us is Jensen Franklin. Are we all clear on that? None of the rest of us gets to be Jensen Franklin. And, and if you knew what he's going through, you probably wouldn't want to be Jensen Franklin. Say, Lord, let me be Jensen Franklin for a while. The Lord says, sure, I'll give you all the problem, the budget, the staff, all these people, the buildings, the expansion, the leadership, the guidance, all of those issues. Say, here am I, Lord, send somebody else. <laughs> so none of us gets to be Jensen Franklin. We, we have to find where we fit. If you sit waiting for God to show you some great place, when God is saying, just do what's in your hand, just do what's in your hand, that means that you take the position and the opportunity that presents itself and do it joyfully as unto the Lord. All of your objections. So God speaks to somebody here. Everybody's wanting God to, Lord, call me to anything, no matter how grand it is. Lord, I'm completely submitted to you. Call me to anything, God. No matter how huge the ministry, I, I promise I'll obey you. And God says, I want you to work in the parking lot ministry. And you say, Lord, I don't believe we've communicated clearly. Because I don't think you understand how smart I am. Or how educated, smooth, how well-spoken I am. And Lord, this is a Hart Schaffner and Marx. I don't park cars. And the Lord says, what is in your hand? This is the moment that I've opened for you. This is the opportunity I've given you. This is a fundamental biblical truth that he who is faithful in small things, God will raise them up to be master of great things. Do what's at hand. Just do what's at hand. And, and, and there's no logic to it. There's no logic. I... I I remember we were attending a small church. Allison and I was on the road a lot as an evangelist. And the, the announcement came in the, in the service that they were short of a worker in the nursery. It's not wasn't a church like this where you have all the things, the background check and everything has to be done. In those days, you know, you needed nine people for the choir. You just went out there. You, 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 up, up. 
And, the, the, you know, the nursery was like that. So the word came, we need somebody else to work in the nursery. Allison hadn't gotten to be in church in a while. I said, baby, you stay here. I went to work in the nursery. Well, the evangelist came to preach at the church for their revival. And they said, he said, well, where's Dr. Rutland? They said, oh, he's working in the nursery. He said, just lead me down there. He said, I just want to see it. So they took Dr. Jack Gray, the evangelist, took him down the nursery. I was down there changing a baby. He, I said, do you need something, Jack? He said, no, I just want to believe, I just want to see this with my eyes. I just want to see Dr. Mark Rutland changing a baby. I said, well, come on in. I could use some help. He said, no, I'm preaching tonight. You know, there's been a, more than one person that was talked out of working in the nursery by the side of the first messy baby they ever saw. You know, I'm trying to say to you that God has places in this community of faith for us to work. There are people that just need to do stuff. Listen, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul the Apostle lists a kind of a catalog of unknown saints. He says, only Luke is with me, a doctor who had a gift for writing, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is with me. He says, Luke is with me. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. I've sent Crescens to Galatia. I've sent Titus to Dalmatia. Maybe none of those guys wanted to go to any of those places. We don't get to sit in on those staff meetings where we see, where we see Paul the Apostle send people. He says, okay, Tychicus, you're going to Ephesus. Oh, I don't want to go to Ephesus. I never have liked Ephesus. Oh, it's, no, I wanted to go to, I wanted to go to Galatia. No, Crescens is going to Galatia. Crescens says, what? What? No, I want to go to, I wanted to go to Dalmatia. I've always liked, my aunt lives in Dalmatia. Each one going where they're sent, when they're sent. Luke is there with Paul the Apostle. Paul writes, send John Mark to me. I find him useful. He's a useful. He also a writer, a writer of a gospel. He says, and then he says, listen to this. He says, when you come to me, to Timothy, stop by the house of Carpus and pick up the cloak that I left there. I just want you to think about that. More than two thousand years later, we still read the name of Carpus, and the only ministry he ever had was he allowed Paul the apostle to hang his overcoat in his hall closet. Now, that's what I'm trying to say, that if you will humble yourself and say, okay, look, if you just want to hang your coat in my closet, if you just need me to clean or sweep or teach or help or serve, whatever it is. I'm willing to be carpus. Just, just hang your coat in my closet. That's the, that, that God so honors that. I suspect there were great teachers, great preachers, anointed prophets that at the time of Paul the apostle that are not even named in the New Testament. But carpus, his only great contribution to the kingdom was Paul said, can I leave my overcoat at your house? And he said, sure, absolutely. He didn't say, well, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't really have room. I've got an overcoat of my own. Where do you want me to hang my overcoat? The Moses syndrome is the syndrome that says, I'm not the perfect candidate. I'm not the perfect candidate. God's answer to the Moses syndrome is always the same. 
my idea of perfect choice is not your idea. And my idea is the one that counts. Let me bring this to a conclusion. Catherine Kuhlman, one of the great healing evangelists of the 20th century, really a, a, a stunning ministry of charismatic and Pentecostal power. Someone asked her one time, what makes you, why do you think God would choose a woman to do this great work? Why would God choose a woman? And Catherine Kuhlman's answer was brilliant in its insight and touching in its humility. She said, I don't for one minute think I was God's first choice. She said, he may have asked hundreds and hundreds of men to do this before I finally said yes. She said, look, if you're up on a chair trying to put a nail in for a, for a painting for a, to hang a photograph, and she said, you get the nail exactly where you want it, but your hammer is out of reach. You can't reach the hammer, and there's nobody to bring it to you. She said, she said, you don't want to lose the mark. You don't want to lose the place. You can't reach the hammer. She said, what do you do? You just pull your shoe off and tap it in with the heel of your shoe. She said, I'm not the hammer of God for this generation. I'm just God's left shoe. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. We don't, we don't really need, we don't really need any hammers. What we need are people who are willing to say, Lord, this is all I've got. This is all I've got. This is, this is what I can do. This is what I can offer. Maybe you don't even know what to volunteer for. Maybe you don't even know what. Just go to somebody and say, look, friend, I love the Lord. I could list you all the reasons that I'm disqualified, but take my name. Call me for anything. If Brother Franklin just wants to hang his coat in my closet, I got a, I got a big closet. You need somebody to drive. You need somebody to help. You need somebody to pop popcorn or cook hot dogs or sweep the carpets. I'm just here. I'm just here. Is there any way, is there any way I can be used? The, the whole thing of volunteering in a church is not like volunteering in a community. It's not like volunteering for the Rotary Club. Volunteering in a church is saying, Lord, use me in service to your kingdom. Use me in service to your kingdom any way you see fit. Despite all my objections, despite all my inabilities or disabilities or disqualifications, use me any way that you see fit. And God says, what is that in your hand? You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.